Hey everybody, welcome to the Fathoming Heavy podcast. Uh, my name is Andrew, and uh, yeah, it's been a minute. Uh, I hope everyone is doing okay. Lots has obviously happened since uh, my last episode, which was in February, and I honestly just haven't felt much like doing this uh, in the midst of a health crisis and an economic crisis and a social crisis and a political crisis. Uh, these crises that have all existed, you know, for such a long time but are coming together in kind of a perfect storm. So, um, yeah, I just haven't felt much like doing this. Um, my outlook has been pretty bleak, um, as it often is. Uh, so this has only kind of deepened that. Um, funny though, you know, I was texting with a friend a few weeks back and I asked more rhetorically, you know, than anything, um, you know, how is this going to end? And he responded immediately, you know, with three things. He said, we will find a vaccine, we'll elect a new president, and we'll enact sweeping social change. And I thought, like, yeah, actually, any and all of this is possible. Um, and what an incredible time this is, what incredible momentum, what incredible possibilities. Um, I certainly can't stay in that mindset all of the time. Um, and I'm often just not very optimistic. But I'm, I'm feeling some energy now that I haven't felt for a long time, uh, just by what I'm seeing, the organizing, the protests, the shift in focus in a widespread way, the shift in conversation. Um, I've certainly never seen anything like it. Um, and I don't know, um, you know, maybe there is some real hope. My guest today, uh, Monty McCleary of the Seattle Doom-based band, or Seattle-based Doom band, Un, and I get into some of this um, for about the first 15 minutes of our conversation uh, but then we get into uh, his story, his music, his process. Um, there's a lot of deep and reflective conversation, which was kind of what I needed. So, Monty, thanks for showing up, um, being here like you did and like you were. Um, the second unrecord, Sentiment, has been kind of a go-to record for me during this pandemic experience. Um, a place that I can just kind of go and hang out, and I feel a real personal connection to a lot of what that record is about. We talk about that, too. Um, and, oh, Monty also plays in Samoth Race, and we get into that just a bit uh, briefly towards the end. Um, there was some background noise on his end, but everything is pretty clear, so that shouldn't be a thing. Um, and thanks again, and as always, to James Raw for the hookup and encouragement. And really to everyone who's checked in and asked about the podcast. Um, it means a lot, and I will try to get another episode uh, out before too much longer. Uh, in the meantime, you can follow me on the socials, uh, not that I do a whole lot there. Um, you can also email me at fathominheavy at gmail.com. Okay, uh, enough of this. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and let's do this. times yeah it's, it's interesting i think right now um especially like as we get into conversation about art and music you know uh we'll see how it goes because there's so much other things going on you know that i think has been prevalent 
especially my own brain, you know, so. I've definitely thought about how to kind of approach this because I don't want to, I don't want this to feel tone deaf at all to what's going on. So in fact, I thought maybe I would just kind of ask how you've been doing during the, the pandemic. How are you feeling about the protests and the things that are going on on, on a social level? You're up in Seattle, is that right? Right. Okay, and we're yeah. I'm in Oakland, um, and I know that the pandemic kind of COVID kind of hit your area a little bit in a more dramatic way than it hit ours at the beginning. So you were dealing with that for uh, some time in a in a real way before we were. How have you been during that? How have you coped? Uh, how's it affected you? How are you? Oof. Uh, so there, that, there's a lot to unpack there, and I don't know how long these uh, how long you have today. Um, I mean, it's, it's been, it's been intense. It's been, I mean, I'm a solitary person, but I think being told to, to quarantine and being told to stay away from like the people that are important to me has made me kind of want to rebel against that. So I'm sure we'll talk about like issues I have with anxiety and depression and stuff like that, but that all of this definitely compounds on, you know, to that, like it makes a lot of my coping mechanisms, uh, completely inaccessible, not just with like things like therapy or progressing myself musically, you know, but also like socially and internally as well. Um, Seattle's a really interesting place to be at for this COVID-19 pandemic for, I think, two specific reasons. One, because we were kind of the epicenter uh, for a second here. Um, and so I think a lot of the, a lot of the fear and the, the anxiety that people had about it was, you know, we experienced kind of firsthand, like first here. Uh, but the opposite end of that is Seattle is also kind of the mecca of public health, um, being that we have UW and all of their studies and, and research. You know, we have the you know Bill Gates Foundation that puts so much money into that. Um, and so we kind of have the best of both worlds. Like, yeah, we hit, got hit with it first, but I think that we're also despite my own criticisms of people on like a micro level, I think we are dealing with it a lot better than a lot of other cities are. Um, and we have quicker and easier access to, you know, resources regarding all that. So it's interesting and it's evolving rapidly. So every day I have like new ideas and yeah, just trying to be pliable and flexible and taking in as much information as I can and like, yeah, I mean, that's basically it. Just trying to stay educated and, and do my part to you know, educate others, which I think is a very similar stance that I'm taking for the protests. And I'm, I'm trying to, a lot of this stuff that I've been thinking about is like in my head. So articulating it in words that I think that are respectful and inclusive I, I'm trying to be very careful for that because my brain and my mouth don't always like match up. <laughs> so, but so I'm a, I'm apprehensive to talk in too much depth because I consider myself to be a student. I'm like actively trying to learn and and figure this stuff out and listen and just be present um, and then you know speak up when I feel like you know it's my job when I'm called upon or when you know I feel you know the need to, which has been a bit here in Seattle, especially where I work in Ballard. Ballard, the neighborhood of Seattle, is really 
attached to its Scandinavian and Nordic heritage and creates a lot of frustrating situations here. Um, you know, I just think that like most people are so uneducated about the issues, you know, it's like then they're so uncomfortable with change and like just having the humility to admit that they have things that they need to work on and things that they need to acknowledge. Like it's, it's a whole lot. And, uh, you know, now's the time for us to do it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I totally resonate with everything you just said, even the idea of wanting to kind of stay quiet about it as you're kind of processing what you're taking in, uh, sort of this, making sense of it. You know, I feel this, this huge sense of, of support and, you know, some, some cautious optimism for what has seems to have begun in a way that I've never actually seen before. There's, it, yeah, it's hard, it's hard to, to talk about and, and to really articulate other than saying like, I, I'm with you and I know that I'm also <clears throat> uh, contributing to the problem and, and re- reflecting and, and, and learning and taking in as much information and, and really kind of letting my own shit be disturbed. Um, right. Really important part of it and being uncomfortable and being held accountable and being receptive to that as opposed to um, defensive. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That, that is the hardest part. And that's the part that people don't want to give up because I think that they think that once their own ideals and behaviors are challenged, it, their whole worldview starts to crumble and then they start feeling like they're, you know, these awful people, you know, and, and I understand that. And it, it is a, it's a, to learn skills to take on that humility to like acknowledge your own shortcomings, you know? And I've, I've grown up and I've been in what I consider to be like a lot of like very culturally diverse, you know, areas with, you know, friends and family and stuff like that. And so like, I always thought I was like, okay, like I am, I have like a foot up on other, you know, people in my demographic, but now every year, every week, every day, I'm like, realizing that there are still these like really ingrained behaviors that I still need to dismantle and help others also dismantle. One of the most recent things for me that kind of like shocked me that I'd never considered was um, I was, uh, I think it was like the last Northwest Terror Fest I had a conversation with um, my friend, Sean Reveron, who runs Cult Nation. He told me the story about when he was a kid or like when he was a young adult, like growing up and trying to find jobs, like he would have to change his voice over the phone just to get interviews. And it was like something I'd never even considered that like, just like the timbre of his voice and his inflection and his, you know, his particular um, sort of vocabulary, you know, it was something that differentiated, differentiated him to such a degree that like he could not find work. Like small things like that that you just like people don't even take into consideration that like you know people of color have to you know navigate every single day and so yeah it's uncomfortable it's constantly evolving and so it's like one day you think that you're like okay I'm on the right track I'm doing the right thing you know just like the blackout Tuesday or whatever it was that Instagram thing that happened and then the next day everyone was like well actually this is not helping at all this is actually counterproductive i don't know do you do you know much about that or did you see that i saw it yeah i didn't dig into what that was about but uh yeah basically people were posting like black 
squares on their Instagram mm-hmm. uh, with the hashtag Black Lives Matter to um, show solidarity uh, for the movement. And what that actually ended up doing was it, it clogged up the hashtag with just black squares, like kind of making it hard to have access to information and resources that people were needing desperately at that time. Okay, and that's so, that I didn't realize, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and you know, it's like, I don't think, like everyone who did it obviously were like doing it in solidarity. Like there was no malintent there at all. Um, but when, you know, um, the community spoke up and were like, this is not helpful. You know, I saw two distinct parties of people. People were like, oh, sorry, let me adjust this in whatever way I can. And then I saw people were like, well, it's no matter what I do, it's wrong, you know. And having, again, the humility, I think that's really the key word here, having the humility to acknowledge and adjust and learn and constantly just be aware that this is changing rapidly. Um, You know, just the terms and, you know, the understanding and just being chill it's it's tough it's tough for everyone you know but you got to do it got to do the work well and that's another thing that i think is perhaps unique about this and i'm not it's just an idea but that this is happening in an age where social media we're so entrenched in social media um where things do change you know on a daily basis or an hourly basis um so it's a constant evaluation and reevaluation and re-reevaluation of what's happened and and that makes sense to that that not was as harmful what's the next thing um so i think there's a pace to it that right that's dizzying to it to a certain extent um so it's, it's i think that is one of the things that's unique about it which is probably one of the things that makes it so full of life and energy but also can make it a little bit hard to know hard to feel sort of like you've got a handle on it um, right yeah it's it's it is scary all yeah. the time <laughs> and as as people who don't have to deal with it directly we only have to deal through it through inference and like being told you know um it feels it feels bad to talk about being anxious or scared about that because literally people of color have no choice but right. to deal with that every day. Yes. And I think it's especially interesting that we have the backdrop of COVID now um, because we are already, I mean, we are already in a situation where we're being shown kind of on a daily basis that our government and our systems are not, I mean, this whole, like right now, Seattle is in the middle of a reopening plan. Um, it's like a four phase plan that is you know, to get everything back up and running. Uh, right now we're in phase two, which means that non-essential businesses can open up to 50% capacity and you can have outdoor seating and blah, blah, blah. Um, it's really interesting. I think that, you know, now it's like people are walking out around again without masks. And it's like, they just, they just think that this thing is, has gone away. But it's totally, it's an economic decision to reopen the cities. It's not a public health decision as far as like what's actually going on in the world nothing has changed. I mean, in fact, like, I think we're seeing that it's actually getting worse, especially now that we're seeing spikes again from Memorial Day weekend and even, you know, before that, like, um, but I think because of that, because so many people are in their house frustrated that the system is failing us all on like, uh, trying to think of the right way to phrase this. I just think that it, it, when 
you know, the murder of George, George Floyd happened, it made a lot of white people be more empathetic towards the systemic oppression and the issues that, you know, people of color and uh, other marginalized and oppressed groups have to face every day because those systems have been failing them nonstop, not just in the sense of pandemic. And so the pandemic has already kind of highlighted that for us. It has removed a lot of distractions, you know, and like, I think that even Seattle's decision to start opening up as quickly as it was, you know, in my opinion, may have been a little bit of a move to pull, I think it was maybe to help like take away some of the attention from the protests, especially, you know, since there has been so much, I think, media coverage on what's happening in Seattle with the chop and, you know, the police leaving, a, like abandoning a precinct, which, you know, in my, my understanding is like something that has never happened before. Yeah, it's but, a big deal. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know if I had a point or if I had said anything. Well, yeah, everything. You, <laughs> I mean, everything you said w- was, I mean, made perfect sense and really kind of reflects a lot of how I've been feeling about a lot of this, you know, as well. And I mean, here we're, I think we're at about the same stage as you are in terms of reopening. And our governor has said there will be an uptake in cases because we're doing this, but we're balancing, we're, you know, we need to balance this a little bit. On one hand, it makes sense. On the other hand, you're balancing, you know, human life with economics. Those things should not be weighed the same. But if the economy disappears and people become desperate, I mean, what's kind of the trade-off? I don't know. It's so, it's complicated. And, um, you know, I, on this day and this moment, um, am very unsure about what the future of my work will be in a way that I've never been before and um, gives me reason to pause. Um, right. And I think a lot of people, and it's, but it's, it, it, I, I feel very conflicted about all of it. Um, on one hand, I would love to see things open um, and assume that that meant that things were safe, but things were opening and things clearly are not safe. So how do you, yeah. how do you navigate that? I don't know. You guys got to take it one day at a time, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And then there's, you know, there's kind of the, um, for me, there's really been the amount of uh, just personal stuff that's, that's come up and you, you know, talked a little bit. I mean, you just mentioned very briefly some of the anxiety and, and those kinds of things that, that, that you deal with. And I deal with some of that same stuff. And um, there's a, uh, it's another podcast I listened to a guy named Connor Habib. And he's got a podcast called Against Everything. And he talks in that about how um, this is, he kind of equates it to being in a car and stomping on the brakes and having everything in the backseat fly to the front and cycle. That has absolutely kind of been what's happened for me. So it's been a time of super deep reflection and kind of just digging through stuff that's come up. And it's been a, a really valuable and painful and deep but important experience um, and in a weird way and this is jumping all over the place but in a weird way listening to a record like um, sentiment it, it's the perfect encapsulation of that in a lot of ways because that record goes so and you, you, lyrically you're, you're dealing with clinging to 
old pain and wounds and do those things, how do those things define you and how can you let go and what are you keeping close? And all of that stuff really kind of has resonated with me during this pandemic experience in a very you know personal way. And we'll get into your music and that stuff. And so I've totally jumped the gun with that, but. <laughs> no, no, well, uh, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, it's still, it's still weird to, to me to hear that stuff because I mean, for me, um, I think that what a lot of people see is the art, like the record, like people, I think a lot of people, most people see the end product as the art. And for me, the end product or the art is the process. You know, it is me like by myself making these decisions, like trying to work through who I am and why I want to do things in a specific way. And so, you know, it's it's a a tired analogy that I seem to use in all of the things related to art is that like, you know, it's really the art is really the seed that I'm planting and 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 watering and and watching and monitoring and adjusting and then you know eventually it does flower into something and i think that's what most other people see not the work that has gone into it i mean not that no one not that anyone thinks that there's no work that goes into it but i just where i feel the art exists is for me a different place than other people so when i hear you know stuff like that it's surprising to me that they I guess I get I guess understand it so fully because I often feel that that part of it is invisible. And that's interesting. So what you're saying is that for you, the art is the process, right, of creation. You end with this this thing that you release out into the world, and then to some extent, you've got to kind of just let it be. And then I come along and decide to engage with it and have an interpretation. Or have, I form a connection to it, and it could be completely not what you're talking about or not not what your process was about. Um, it sounds like maybe I wasn't too far off. What, what I'm connecting with is something that you were also uh, working with as you were going through your process. But I'm always nervous to tell somebody what their art means to me or you know, what, what the culmination of their art means to me. Um, because it could be completely off and that person could just look at me and say, well, you, you completely missed it. Um, <laughs> I'm always relieved when that doesn't happen. I'm, I'm surprised. I'm surprised at the frequency that that doesn't happen because I do intentionally kind of leave enough room for people to put themselves in to the music. You know, I don't want things to be so specific to my own experience that people can't relate to it at all. Um, which I think is part of why people do connect to it. But the fact that people come to me just like just now and they highlight so much of exactly what I put into it behind closed doors by myself, some some parts that even my bandmates don't see or experience, you know, it's really revelatory. It's really eye-opening. And it's, you know, it's, it's surprising because it's like, I don't know, I'm just a regular person just trying to figure things out, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I get it. I do. So let's, I mean, let's go back just a little bit. Where did it start for you? Like, where'd you grow up? How'd you get into heavy music? Yeah. um, I think that's a really interesting question because that really depends on your definition of what heavy music is. And for me, broad definition. Right. For me, it changes all the time. I mean, like what, what, 
my dad listened to a lot of heavy metal and rock and roll. I mean, Van Halen, Judas Priest, Kiss was one of my favorite bands growing up, you know, so it's like head, like distorted guitars and solos and theatrics and all of that thing. Like that was something I grew up on. I'm, I'm, I'm a very dramatic person, I think, because of that just in general. And I think art does need a certain amount of drama to it. But my own, I think, journey really began when we moved to um, a town in Washington called Aberdeen. And, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people know Aberdeen from Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. And I had a little bit of experience um, with Nirvana's music when I moved there. I mean, I knew, you know, Heart Shaped Box and smells like teen spirit and, and and there were fine songs but I didn't have really any big emotional attachment to it but everyone at school all the kids I mean they were always wearing that Nirvana smiley face shirt and like all the everyone's favorite band is Nirvana and um, I felt a little lost in that um, and and to, to backtrack even further I mean uh, I got my my first guitar when I was four years old okay a Christmas gift you know, from my grandfather. So music has always been like a really important thing. And your family so when I got, supported it. I mean, your dad was into yeah. rock music and some metal. And yeah. your my mom was really into country, but you know, they, they both wanted me to be a musician. Okay. You know, like, right. yeah. 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 So like when we, when we moved to Aberdeen, um, I think kind of out of rebellion, I was just like, so I guess, tired of hearing about grunge and so tired of just being so submersed in it and it was like I tried to join a few bands when I was like 12 or 13 years old and that's all they wanted to do was like covers and like we had some like shows um at like local venues that we would go to it was all like punk bands and I really liked the energy of it but the emotion that I wanted out of it was not there and so my true I guess origins of heavy music is like I, well, I think a lot of people would consider me kind of embarrassing now. It's like I had access to MTV too. And so it's like, what do I listen to? I listen to like new metal, you know, <laughs> like a lot of new metal and, um, you know, Linkin Park and Limp Biscuit. And like, it's funny because there was a huge period of my life where I was like, that is horrible. Like that was such an unspeakable time of my musical history. And now as like a 30 year old adult, I'm like coming back to like, no, those songs, I still love them, you know? And, There's a lot of people are crazy. I mean, there's still certain things that I won't touch. I'm not, I can't, I can't get down with Disturbed. <laughs> but I think really my interest in heavy music just came from like wanting to separate myself from what was so prevalent in my own like community, which was a lot of grunge and a lot of that kind of stuff. So I started getting onto, you know, forums and like finding like whatever I could get my hands on. My first metal record that I bought was like, was Niles in the catacombs of Nefren Ka or something nice. like that. Yeah. I just thought the album cover was so cool, but I put it in my CD player and I just, I couldn't. All the blast beats, all the growling, it was, it was too much for me. And so I just like threw it in my closet and never touched it again. But as I continued like wanting weirder and darker and heavier things, I did come back to it. And then throughout high school and into like my early 20s, like death metal was all I cared about. Like I was just one of those douchey little kids where like if it if it wasn't like 240 BPMs with like low growls like I didn't want anything to do with it. And then um, I started a death metal band 
uh, in Seattle when I turned 18, I dropped out of school and moved right to, you know, Seattle to start a band. And the, there was no community there. I mean, we'd play shows and the bands would come in, they would play their sets, they'd pack up and they'd leave, you know, and it was just like, it felt so lonely and performative and competitive. And I, it wasn't what I was looking for at all. It's not why I left, you know, Aberdeen. How um, and so Seattle from Aberdeen? Uh, like two and a half hours. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Southwest, like right on the peninsula is where Aberdeen is. And then, like, and then what, like, what year or time frame are we talking about that you left Aberdeen for Seattle? Uh, 2008. Okay. Yeah. So I moved there in 2011. And then, or sorry, 2001. Okay. And then left in 2008 when I was, when I was 18. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And I had some issues with, with high school where, I mean, it's, that's a boring unrelated story, but I just basically had two options of either just like dropping out and, and doing what I wanted to do with my life or, uh, or sticking around in this shitty small town with people I didn't relate to, you know, for another couple of years. And I, and I didn't want that. So, so moved to Seattle in 2008, started my first band was really disenchanted just by the fact that it was, it was a lot of aggressive dudes who didn't give a fuck about anyone but themselves. And they just wanted to, like, they wanted to be the next, like, MySpace band that, you know, got all the, you know, views and stuff. And, and there was no art in it. There was no community. And it it burnt me out. I was just like, I, I'm not interested in this at all. I stopped playing music. I sold my guitars. And I just kind of, and I just kind of, like, forgot about it for a couple of years. And that led to, like, a pretty serious depression. I moved back with, I moved back to Aberdeen for, like, a year with my mom. And I just, like, didn't do anything. Uh, and then I came back to visit a friend in Seattle. And he's like, you have to hear this record. He's like, I, he's like I've not heard any other band like it. Uh, and he shows me uh, The Call of the Wretched Sea by Ahab. And it was just like, the slowest, heaviest, gnarliest. Thing ever but it still had that that theatrics that i loved from like you know the early like rock and heavy metal stuff that my dad showed me uh but it had that emotion that i was really missing out of death metal but it still had the textural aesthetic of death metal the sort of guitars like the heavy compressed kick drums you know the stuff that just like really like exploded my brain every time i heard it but it was it was different and i remember making like dumb Facebook post where I was like, why isn't there more doom metal in Seattle? This is so so cool, you know, it seems so perfect. And then as I started to kind of explore it more, I realized that, you know, Seattle, Seattle's DNA, like the grunge, the thing that like I rejected is so important to like kind of the growth of sludge and doom metal. I mean the fact that Kurt Cobain appeared on the first few Earth records, you know, and like the fact that Stephen O'Malley and Greg Anderson, you know, like their start was here in Seattle before they moved and, and did some, you know, I mean, it's interesting that I landed here, landed in the style of music that I did completely separated from it. I mean, it's, I mean, like I said, like I, I rejected grunge because I was just like not interested in it. Now, even in the last year, I'm like going back and listening to Nirvana. I'm like, oh, these songs really heavy these songs were really heavy then of course you have Soundgarden, louder than love and doom in the form of bands like sabbath were so influential on that 
which then became so influential on the next kind of wave of doom. Um, it's really interesting how it cycles like that. Yeah. So, I mean, I've also never been a person that really subscribed to a particular genre of music. Like even now I don't really consider myself to be a huge doom metal fan, even though I think that's like what a lot of people uh, associate me with, but I tend to kind of like find the artists that I like in any particular corner of, of a genre and, and, and cling on to that and then, and then continue exploring, see what excites me. And I still kind of have that attitude, which I think I, in other people I see as being pretentious, but it's just like once a thing like picks up steam and becomes like kind of like, I hate using the word trendy, but it's just like, I want to see what like, like what people can do with that, like how far they could push it. You know, it's like, I love Spectral Voice so much, but you know, once that record came out and everyone started picking it up, now we just have 20 Spectral Voice, right. you know, right. sound, you know, bands. And that's great. Like I support my friends art and I don't think that there's any like wrong approach to that, but it's just like, yeah, it's like, I find, I just want to keep pushing myself and seeing what else is out there that like no one else is kind of doing, which I think will lead into talking about what I want to do next. <laughs> it will. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But before we get there, um, you kind of, I mean, you discover Ahab and it sounds like they were maybe a, a, a jumping off point for you into this, this whole thing. So at what point then did you, did you make the sort of the, the choice to begin playing this kind of, I mean, for funeral doom or, you know, whatever you want to, however you want to refer to it and not to get all caught up in the terminology, but we say the phrase, we know what we're talking about. When did you decide that this was something you actually wanted to uh, to perhaps explore yourself? Um, I mean, it was pretty soon after that. I mean, that really that hearing that album really lit a fire in me creatively that I hadn't felt in a long time. I think anyone who listens to our music, um, I'm actually surprised by how few people in in the U.S. know about Ahab. Like, I talk to people at shows all the time. I'm like, oh well, obviously. And we'll get comparisons like to Paul Bearer and, you know, Warning and stuff like that, you know, but like, or Evoken, but very few people will be like, oh, I really hear the Ahab influence. And like, to me, I'm like, I'm almost like, I want to not bring up Ahab because I don't want people to realize how inspired, how influenced I was by their format. But yeah, so I mean, after I heard Ahab and then I realized that there was doom metal Seattle or, or things adjacent to that i started going to more shows and then the sonic experience like i remember the first doom metal band i ever saw was was i believe a band that kind of emerged from anhedonist uh which like a big like a bc death metal band i think i wasn't actually that familiar with them but i know that other people really held them dearly uh this band called shadow of the torturer and i saw shadow of the torturer and they just had this wall of sun amps full stacks and like it was just like yeah, I mean, you know, it, yeah. that's, that's, that's such a staple now. Everyone knows what that experience is. But I remember the first time I experienced that, and I was just like, it shook me physically, you know, and emotionally. And I was like, this is what I have been looking for. And the fact that everyone there was friends. And it, it wasn't just these dudes in leather jackets. I mean, it was dorks like me and all kinds of nerds and weirdos. And it was like, it felt really welcoming. It felt like a community and a family. And like, all of those things together, I was like, okay, this is this is where I belong. So that's that's kind of, I think, where I was like, this is what I want to do. 
And I'm curious, have you heard any of our like early demos? We released two demos before the Tomb of All Things, which are now not available, but... I haven't. Okay. Tomb of All Things is the earliest that I've heard from you. Uh, I'll, I'll send them to you, but okay. I just keep them for my personal collection uh, now, uh, mainly, but previous to Ahab, I was really into a lot of like, post-metal stuff, and like I don't know if... I mean, like, I, was, I really loved Neurosis. The Eye of Every Storm was really influential to me and then like cult of luna somewhere along the highway was like another record that just like blew me away i mean the atmosphere of that and like the the emotion behind it and so our early stuff was really more influenced by stuff like that i mean it was like sludgier it was faster it was more weird time signatures i would love to hear that i mean i i love that stuff i love i mean neurosis is one of my you know all-time favorite bands and um and i love cult of luna cult of luna was the last band i saw i saw them on monday and then the shutdown the COVID shutdown happened on friday they were the last band that i saw before all this happened yeah i was so sad that that tour wasn't coming through seattle because uh, also intronaut was like a was a big influence and then emma ruth Rundle is amazing so amazing. I, that that tour should have came to seattle and even though i know how how hard it is to make certain cities work in in your routing like it should have came to it should absolutely <laughs> but uh i forgot where i was going with that so maybe maybe i'll stop myself before i go you were just talking about how the early stuff was a little more influenced by oh, some of those and, stuff. yeah and then it, our stuff did that you like start getting slower and and i guess I don't know. A lot of people say it's sad. I don't really see our music as being like explicitly sad. I certainly, I don't even like classify us as like a funeral doom band. I don't think we're slow enough. I don't think we're grim enough. You know, uh, I mainly use that term to, to differentiate us from like donor doom, you know, which we're definitely not. No. You know, I really kept wanting to push, you know, the first couple songs. I mean, I hate to reference them too much because they're not really accessible for anyone to hear right now. They, melodically you could hear where where we ended up going with like sentiment but every release we kept pushing ourselves like okay can we make this a little slower can we make this a little sadder quote unquote you know like how do we really like see where the edges of the of our boundaries within this art form are and then that's kind of where some of all things ended up so it's interesting i think moving from death metal on sort of one end of the spectrum to doom, the difference is vast um, in terms of, right. obviously in terms of tempo, there's a lot of similarities though, but I find that listening to one is a very different experience and I need to be in a very different headspace to listen to death metal than I do to listen to, you know, super slow doom. They bring up different things for me. And again, I go back to kind of my experience, especially during these past few months, going back and revisiting a record like Sentiment, that taps in it and I'm able to kind of lock in with that because it's very much reflecting back to me how I'm feeling right now, which is not, I am not in a death metal mood, but not being somebody who has a lot of experience actually creating and playing this music. Are those two very different things for you as a musician and are they coming from the same place? When you discovered Ahab, was that kind of uncorking something in you that made you want to make that pivot? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think 
so like funeral doom especially i think is is like it has a lot of death metal dna in it and i think that's why it was it was an easy transition for me it was because it's like the same kind of guitar tones the same kind of guitar leads same kind of vocals you know i think the space and the atmosphere that the tempo and the like effects that are used allow more room for for emotion to be expressed it's not just sheer brutality and i think part of the reason why a lot of our songs are the tempos that they are is because it's you know we're certainly not Bellwitch or Mournful Congregation when it comes to like how slow we are. We're kind of more of a mid-tempo doom metal band, I think, most of the time, you know, but that gives us room to push that or pull it back. And in those dynamics, in those moments of tension and that ebb and flow, I think that's really where that distinction lives, where that emotion comes from. And I still, I still do love death metal. I mean, Defeated Sanity is one of the most important bands in the world to me. Worms, I love that stuff so much. Uh, but to me, it, it, it's luxury. It's it's candy, you know? It's not for, like, intense introspect, like, introspective work, which I think is, for me, what art is really a tool for. And, yeah, so a doom metal giving, like, physically that space and that time to really, like, dig deep within myself and also try to connect the dots between why other artists make the art that they make. Was that something that you knew that you were feeling compelled to do or like what came first? You're just kind of your discovery of doom um, and then realizing, Oh, I can do all this stuff with it. Or did you have this, this desire to dig into your, into yourself and do that self-exploration and kind of work on your stuff. And, and then you found the mechanism to kind of channel that. Yeah. You know, I didn't really realize that, that this was a medium that I could express myself, I think so honestly and vulnerably. That, that was something that kind of revealed itself to me over time as I exposed myself more and more to it. And yeah, that was a slow thing that now I'm like, even, even still like, my process of that is is still continuing. So no, it's something that kind of revealed itself to me over time. I think that there was something I identified subconsciously when I first heard, you know, Ahab and other two metal bands that that I didn't really I wasn't really able to understand initially until like why it like attracted me, why it like pulled me towards it. You know? Right. Are you comfortable with well, clearly you are because you're doing it, but was there, was, have you had moments of, say, um, hesitation as you've, you've poured yourself into this and it is so personal and you're kind of putting certain things out there um, for people to see? Uh, I mean, to answer, your, to answer the question, am I comfortable with it? I, I mean, I'll answer you, no, I'm not. It is, it is extremely uncomfortable all the time. And I've just gotten used to being uncomfortable and using that as a tool to propel that. Because I think everyone is uncomfortable with that. Like I think every single person, I mean, we've all kind of trained ourselves to have what I call like these emotional foyers, like these small rooms of emotional vulnerability or availability that they allow everyone access to. But to let anyone else beyond that into the, the, the rest of the house, you know, that's a really scary thing for everyone you know, um, largely because of how we're conditioned uh, in society and 
know, how we're conditioned in our personal relationships, you know. No, it, yeah, it's, it's never comfortable. It's just something that, like, that I'm always compelled. I just feel like I, ha- I have to do. And that's why I think that, like, a lot of the art actually exists behind closed doors in, in the places where no one else is going to get to see. I, I try not to inject too much self-importance because I know that I, I feel like there are artists who do it way better than I do or, you know, but like, getting, like I have stage fright every, every single time we get up there, even after like playing 20 nights in a row in Europe, you know, I'm just like, I get scared every time. And it's like, you know, I don't, I don't want any kudos for like crying on stage but like sometimes like I get so overwhelmed like that's what happens when we play those songs when we perform them like I am like it is for myself it is re-exploring these things and it's constantly recontextualizing them too because the person I was when I wrote those songs when we wrote those songs and the person I am now is very different and to re-look through that and to re-approach it I mean it yeah it's still uncomfortable sometimes it's embarrassing like to be like oh my gosh like what a diva I am. Like how, like, look at all this melodrama, you know, like, and that's also plays into why I think I'm like, I have no idea why people are interested in it. Like on paper, it's like, I'm like, Oh my God, like <laughs> what a dork, you know, like what a, but so yeah, no, it's, it's not comfortable. It's just like, for some reason it is just, I feel like that's the tool that I have to, that's the language I've learned to communicate with the world. Like I'm an anxious, weird uncomfortable like timid creature and you know like I just chose to lean into that and I think that is the thing that actually make allows people to feel connected that's absolutely right you know uh, I, I feel this I feel the same way about bands like Yob and I think like like Yob is like such a perfect example to me because like Yob is one of my favorite bands of all time mm-hmm. um, but like if you actually break down what they're doing. I mean, like, Mike Scheidt isn't, like, this crazy virtuoso shredder. I mean, they'll play the same riff for literally 16 minutes, and that's the whole song, you know? It's like, like how do they get away with that? It's because it is it is so honest and and vulnerable, and, and that's something that every single person in the world relates to, unless you're a sociopath. And then that's why you play death metal. <laughs> <laughs> Just... Just kidding. <laughs> I mean, you're 100 percent right in that, and I think, um, yeah, there is that that sense of honesty and vulnerability and risk taking um, that we, as fans of this music, recognize and appreciate, um, and that's what, that's what resonates. And you talked about, I mean, the analogy of the um, the foyer and the house. And you spend your time in the house and you kind of come into the foyer and, and it's like, then I meet you there and then I build my house um, or my house is connected to that same foyer. And right. we have different experiences and different lives, but um, there's something that you're putting out there that is absolutely mirroring like what's going on in my house. I have different decorations for yeah. certain, but like the, how houses are built are generally the same, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just think that that um, is an absolutely massive part of why this music resonates with, with so many people. And that's a common, you know, I mean, this is a common idea that, that you see in, in any kind of art form, right? Is, is when somebody is putting themselves out there and be honest and 
showing something and exposing something in a beautiful way, uh, people respond. I mean, kids today still respond to the you know, Kurt Cobain songs from 30 years ago, you know, because it's, it speaks to their experience. Um, and we need that. So from my perspective, what you're doing is, is giving us uh, just an incredible gift. Um, and I'm not just saying that to flatter or blow smoke. You know, I mean, Mike Scheitz, Dylan Desmond does it. You do it. It's, uh, it has a profound impact. Right. So anyway, I don't need to continue on that. No, <laughs> no I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate being included alongside those things, you know, but like I feel the same way about other artists. You know, and that's why I I do it. You know, I mean, I think that like that's another reason why do metal is I think so attractive to a lot of people is because it's not behind a lot of fancy studio tricks or super shreddy you know stuff. It's like like literally anyone can can do this. This is a this is not form that you know with a small amount of resources like is accessible to a lot of people. You know, you don't have to be a good songwriter. You don't have to be a crazy good guitarist or a great vocalist you just have to know how to express yourself honestly and that's why like i said earlier my definition of what heavy music is changes every single day because to me that's what makes music heavy it's not it's not the guitars it's not the the aesthetics it's not the adam burke cover art you know it's 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 the honesty it's the fearlessness and it's the the risk of vulnerability. Yeah, and the expression, the ability to express something, some essential and deep part of the human experience or human condition that other people see and relate to. Right. Um, I know you've talked about this a little bit, but I know that around the time of the first the first record, you were going through some pretty significant health issues. Yeah, uh, indeed. Did that coincide with the recording of that record, or did those did that happen towards the end? Okay, so to I guess expand on what you're talking about, yeah, in 2014 I was diagnosed with diffuse large B cell lymphoma, which is a type of blood cancer, mm-hmm. which is something I'll I'll talk about at length. I have just spent so much time talking about it. I feel like people are bored, especially my bandmates. You know, like are bored of hearing about it. But so we had to talk a little bit about the team of all things, which I think right now is actually prevalent because of some plans that we have coming up. But we had most of the songs crafted. And originally I wanted the the album to be a sci-fi concept record about the death of the universe, which is such a cliche thing to write a sci-fi concept about. But that's what I wanted. And it was from the perspective of two astronauts who had left Earth and because of the speed that they were traveling, you know, they had only been away from home for a few weeks, but Earth was already like hundreds of years behind them. So already alone by themselves. And so this concept record about the death of the of the universe, but also about coming to terms with being alone and and staring your own mortality in the face. So this was all something that we were working on when I got my diagnosis, which was relatively unexpected as it often is. And then the band went on hold, you know, for basically a year while I went through chemo and, you know, we dealt with all of that. And when I was finally um, given 
when I was finally told that I was in remission and I would no longer have to continue chemotherapy, there were a lot of caveats to that. There was a lot of like, you know, it may or may not come back. Like these are the windows of time that we would expect it to, if it were going to happen. Here are other ways that, and so basically I was like, we have to do this right now. We have to, we have, so first of all, my, that experience totally recontextualized what I had already been working on thematically. Uh, suddenly this idea about the death of the universe and coming to terms with being alone in the universe became very much a personal uh, thing I was dealing with. And it was striking to me how how close to the mark I already was prior to having to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, the whole the whole record was recontextualized. But coming out of that, being that I had no idea what my future was, how long I would have to accomplish this. Um, we recorded it, I think, four months after um, my final chemo session in three days from, from nothing to mastered in 72 hours. My, vo- my vocal cords um, still very much healing. Um, and so on the record now, I mean, you could hear me out of breath. You could hear me, my voice cracking, which are things that I don't even know I would have left in there. So just because we had no time, like I, I did all of those vocal takes in like two takes max on the song, uh, through the luminous dusk. It's all a single take, wow. both high and low vocal in the same track, you know, just because that's, that's what we had. And it was, and it was absolutely exhausting. And for a long time, like once, once I kind of realized that I was in the clear and uh, once we went, you know, three to now the five year mark of being in permission, you know, in my head, I listened back to it and like, there is a certain amount of anxiety in it where it's like, we knew I felt like I had to do that right then. Otherwise I may not have a chance to do it ever again. And I think that adds something to it, but then there's still a lot of things I was unhappy about. The vocals being, I feel like very weak, like, representations of what I would have been capable of at 100% capacity, but also just like, you know, like the stress I put my band members through with that as well, because like in my head, I was like fully prepared. I had already dealt with the quote unquote inevitability of my death. I had already thought that's what was going to happen. And the fact that I get was given this new chance, but still felt like that was maybe just over the horizon again, like, so, so my relationship with that record has been kind of turbulent because I do like, I'm like, okay, we could have only made this in the way that we did because of the circumstances around it. Um, not only that, but like right after I stopped chemo, our bassist Clayton, his father passed away from cancer unexpectedly right after that. So this was also something that we were really like, we were just sitting in anxiety and fear and, and uncertain and uncertainty of, of what what we could accomplish, you know. And so, yeah, we could have only made that record because of all of that. But yeah. then there's stuff where it's like, man, feels really rushed. Like, wow, some of these drum fills could have been better, or we could have spent more time like dialing in those guitar tones, you know, or something, you know. And so it's, it's a weird record for me. So this, I mean, what you were just talking about caused me to think about this, and this may be something. You've been asked too many times if you have been. How did that cancer experience, how, how has that impacted you? Have, do you see the world in a different way? How has your thinking and perspective shifted? I am absolutely 
uh, a different person. And I think that anyone who would go through an experience like that and not be is, I'm not sure what kind of existence they must live to not be humbled by that. Um, so yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, I, I try to be a different person every day, but like there are certainly those before and after moments in people's lives where it's like you know, before I dealt with that and now after. It was there. It was really, it was a really interesting experience because I was trying to come to terms with it myself, which was really with with you know the possibility of my own death, and it was really scary. But of course, I had a lot of people around me who were also very scared, and like especially my parents and my my dad was particularly. Uh, my grandfather died of throat cancer you know, in 98, and my dad was, you know, took care of him for years, and so when I got my diagnosis, my dad, you know, basically threw his arms up in the air, and just was like, well, this is it, you know, I'm going to lose my son now, too, you know, um, and so, so I felt obligated to use so much of my energy to kind of comfort people around me. Ah, interesting. Because, I mean, it was, a, it was a lot. It was, like, it was hard for me to deal with things, I literally, or figuratively had, like, a group of people mourning my death before it happened and so I spent a lot of energy being like trying to stay positive and trying to be uplifting to to others around me so I can still just exist in a somewhat normal capacity uh, and and that was tough and extremely exhausting but it taught me a really valuable skill about empathy and um, understanding how understanding the relationship between how you internalize and deal with something and how other people internalize and deal with things and how those are related and again i think that is kind of a skill that lends itself to me being able to be as honest and emotive and i guess relatable to people like through this art it, it took a lot of work in internalizing and it wasn't so, it was not it was far away from my favorite part of the process which comfort others while I was also trying to come to terms with it myself internally. So yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing. It's just the, just the, the empathy, I guess, and the ability to, I guess, see and at least to some extent understand uh, how other people also deal with these really jarring life experiences, you know? And, and still, I mean, I, I feel like I'm learning about that like every single day. Yeah, I guess that's that's the biggest, that's like as concise of a bullet point as I think I can like offer in that. Because obviously there was these micro changes like all the time. Are there ways that like you are aware that it has impacted what you've done musically? I think the way that I look at death and deal with mortality is certainly much more of a topic that I am constantly evaluating and that tends to be a core concept of the music and art that I make so yeah absolutely I mean I think that I mean yeah I just think that my need my uh, my compulsion to be as honest and vulnerable all the time is comes from the fact that you know regardless if it's something like cancer or just like stepping off of curb and getting hit by a car that like you know the, the moments that we have to express ourselves honestly are limited and and so getting over that fear and not even getting over it but just like learning to use it 
and be humbled by it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I hope I hope that that's making sense. But yeah, that is like it doesn't just influence what I do now. It is like hundred percent of it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you know it's a million bands could write concept albums about the death of the universe and stuff, and and that's cool. I love that stuff. Like I said, I love War. I love Worm. Then I love Ahab, where it's all like concepts about books and whaling and stuff like that. But and not to like, not to say that it's better or worse, but the fact that I can now offer that as my source of expression, I think you know, puts us in a different category within. Them. Yeah, that doesn't, that doesn't sound egotistical or self-important, does it? No, it doesn't. Cut it out if it does later. <laughs> <laughs> no, it it makes total sense, and um, I mean, talk about taking something traumatic in the deepest way. I mean, you, you are looking at your mortality in a very intimate and real way and then changing because of it and, and channeling that experience. I mean, knowing that you will, you have been forever changed by that forever altered and being able then to, to take something and make something with that. Um, I mean, what a, what a gift. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying your cancer was a gift and that what you went through was a positive thing. But I mean, I responded to that experience is I think the thing that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to always operate that like, if we can use negative experiences in our life as opportunities to learn about ourselves in the world, then they are no longer negative experiences. So, you know, I, I am grateful for it. I'm grateful I didn't die. <laughs> I'm grateful I had, a, I had another chance to write another record, you know, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's all extremely important. I think every single person, regardless of what, what it looks like on paper, like whether it's cancer or a bad breakup or something, you know, I think every person has those, those kinds of experiences. And as long as they can figure out how to use it as a learning experience, you know. And that's very different from saying, oh, look on the bright side. Um, right. But in the middle of what we're going through as a world right now, you know, you can't help but say, where is, where is the good in here? And what can I learn from this? And what can I do to exist in a, in a, in a different and better way once this is done? Um, how will this be a catalyst for some kind of positive change? Right. You can't focus on that all the time, but it really helps if that's there. I mean, it's often not until after the fact it, yeah. it's even perceptible and it takes humility and it takes, it takes time and discomfort, you know, a lot of process. Yeah. <laughs> and it takes therapy, a lot of therapy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big uh, fan of therapy myself. Yeah, me too. That's, I think, you know, uh, a, that's a really important thing to me. I think everyone needs it. I think especially if you don't think you do, I think you probably have some stuff that you really need to unearth. But yeah, I'm I'm very vocal about how important I believe therapy to be, yeah, just for everyone. So, yeah. especially in extreme music. I think it's actually kind of interesting. Well, I don't want to go down that road. Especially in extreme music, like, there's a lot of stuff that people need to work through uh, right now. <laughs> I think therapists really like 
working with people involved um, in extreme music. I have a pretty good relationship with, with mine, but music is very seldom a topic that we talk about, you know. But yeah, I imagine so. I imagine that therapists probably make a lot of money off of <laughs> you mentioned that you know you are working on something to kind of revisit something from the past your next project um are you writing new music as well what, what's coming up i am constantly working on things like i'm 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 constantly like fiddling around i'm trying to think of how to frame this um yes and no i mean i don't have any like my creative process tends to be like a 70-30 thing where like I spend 70% of my time just like thinking absently and then 30% of my time like crushing all of the things I need to actually do to like make the record happen. Yeah. Uh, and right now I'm, I'm definitely in that 70% zone where I have like files on my computer of possible new ideas. But right now I'm really trying to decide like what I want my role to be within the sphere like of heavy music moving forward so i'll, I'll do a little bit, bit of backtracking last year 2019 we did we spent a lot of time on the road uh supporting sentiment i mean something between like 16 and 20 weeks we are just like out there non-stop for better or for worse and but for me i mean it did take quite a bit of an emotional toll i felt a lot like every day that we were on the road i was getting like there was this moment where like I told you like the art for me is in the process mm -hmm. and then we recorded the record and then we toured on the record. And I felt like every day, every show that we played took me a day farther away from the art and it was troubling for me and things maybe started to feel a little bit performative, but you know, in the negative connotation of that and, and that, and I, I, I've been struggling with that. And so I decided, you know, for myself that I was going to take some time this year you know, even prior to COVID to kind of reevaluate um, who, who I am as a person and what I actually have to offer because the music is great. I'm glad that it is a thing that people can have access to and, and feel seen and acknowledged and connected with other people. Uh, but I, I don't want to write just like another doom metal record that, that any doom metal band can write. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people would disagree with me, but like, you know, as far as just the compositions go, I mean, like the songs that we wrote are not anything that would have been beyond someone else's capability. It just happened through circumstances that those were the groups of notes that we decided to use, you know? And so moving forward, I want to really, dig into who we are as people and what we can offer that no one else can and not out of ego but just because like that we already have a belt witch we already have a mournful congregation we already have a pallbearer we already have all of this other stuff and it's like so where in this sequence in the in the grand sphere of things like can we find a spot that only we exist and that is conceptually most of the work that i've been doing Okay. Like, I, I know, like, our music will always be, quote, unquote, heavy music, but, like, I don't want to be just a funeral doom band. I don't want to be a doom metal band. I feel like those things often limit me, and then I will, like, start writing a song, and I'll be like, this is really cool, but anyone can be doing this. You know, like, this is, this isn't, if I, if I hand this over to someone, I want them to look at it and hear it, and, like, this is Monty, and this is un- 
unequivocally. Um, it's a difficult thing. I don't know to what degree I'll achieve that. Uh, I have I have ideas, and there's definitely, I will say, a new record in the works, regardless if a single note has been com- committed yet, you know? And I don't know how promising or compelling that seems to other people, because like I said, it's like, for me, it's 70% emotional work, 30%, like, okay, we're actually going to sit down and contextualize this into, like, a physical thing. So uh, we'll see. I mean, I hope I hope that we'll have something new to show people in the fall or by next spring, but with the state of, I don't want to say the state of the world, because I feel like that makes, that minimizes things to being something that's happening right now, when the reality is this is something that's always been happening. We're just being shown it more frequently now. But like, I, it's it's hopefully soon. I mean, like every day I have my guitar and every day I'm like thinking and writing and, and, working through things you know but i definitely i don't want to write sentiment part two i don't want to write another ahab ripoff record you know i want to find the thing that makes us distinctly un, you know distinctly monty distinctly you know clayton alex and david you know and so like you know even if if it sucks you know even if like every person that hears it like this isn't what i wanted out of the next one record like I want it to be something that like no one else would have done. Right. If that makes any sense. And that probably will be the mindset that you approach everything you do from here on out. I think so. Yeah. A search that will be never ending. I mean, I hope so. I hope that's what everyone tries to do within whatever avenue of life that they explore. Do you, when, when you're writing, and you bring something to the band, does it become a collaborative thing? The writing process, um, it, it depends on the day. You know, um, I am certainly like, I am obsessive. And so when I have an idea, I'll like sit, like a musical idea, um, I'll sit in my room and I'll just write it. And I have like a small home studio that, you know, I'll just record as I play. And then I'll be like, okay, here's the skeleton of a song. And then, and then I'll bring it to the rest of the guys. Um, and then as we play it, it will evolve. It'll, it'll, we'll chip away at it a little bit and we'll find out what feels good in a real personal sense, you know, and then it becomes, you know, a different thing. Generally I'll have like songs 70 to 80% at least formulated before I bring it to the guys. I try to make it as involved and as democratic as possible, you know, like, one of my favorite songs on Sentiment is Fools of Reflection. And that whole song spawned from a piano piece that David, our other guitar player, wrote. And oh. he has like these real big, beautiful chords laid out like on, on, on the piano. And uh, I just absolutely loved it. But we played with fuzz pedals and like tons of distortion and, and, and reverb and stuff. And so like I then took that and I was like, okay, well, we're going to take these notes and you're going to play that. And then we're going to take these notes and then Clayton's going to play that. And then I'm going to play this. And suddenly like, instead of having like one chord that's played with eight fingers, now like the three of us are like separating it, all of this to like create this like grander stereoscope, like more atmosphere and things like that. And yeah. so oftentimes like we'll have stuff like that too. I mean, there was a song on Team of All Things that was very similar as well. So it really just depends. I mean, I think that, a lot of the reason why like the actual material is stuff that I've written is just because I, I work so rapid fire. I'm just like, 
once I have an idea and I put it down, I just like push it all the way through. I try to write songs like stories, you know, that have like specific beginnings, middles, and ends without too much repeating. I do like the idea of like motifs and themes like recurring, but in like different like contexts where it's like, oh, that's the same melody, but it's now performed in a different way, you know, or something. So I mean, it really it's it really just depends on how much caffeine we've had, you know, or, or like what emotions you know are happening in the room, or like how inspired I was the night beforehand in my bedroom. But for me, I mean, the the songs, I mean, I'm I'm certainly very proud of them. But this all a vessel for the emotional work that like we put into it. I hope I hope people understand that, and I hope people like see the distinction, and not to like. I always get a little bummed out when. I hear my favorite artists, you know, talk about that. But it's like, oh, they're just, uh, it's just something you like. I think when I found out like that some of my favorite artists like actually like wrote stuff in the studio, mm-hmm. like it wasn't a thing that they, like when I found out about like what actually like an uh, album being produced, what that actually meant. And the fact that like sometimes these ideas weren't even coming from the band or the artist themselves. The fact that other people wrote songs or different groups like that was such a weird thing for me and it, it felt disenchanting but for me it's like it's about the emotional work the the songs are just like the physical songs are like vessels for that and so it's like half it's circumstantial like half expanse like we all felt good about this in a particular moment and then right. so we that's what ended up on on the paper so and you've been working the the lineup on tomb of all things and sentiment is the same four guys a uh, different D- different drummer. Different drummer. Uh, yeah. Uh, Alex, jo- our current drummer, joined the band about three years ago. In fact, we came out with a split with Cold Flood right. uh, last year. It actually came out after Sentiment, but was recorded a year or, or so longer before Sentiment was recorded. And um, when Alex joined the band, he just brought this like energy that we hadn't had in, in a rehearsal space for a long time. And uh, we were getting ready to go on tour, and we just like sat down. We we're like, okay, are we gonna spend time teaching him our entire back catalog of this material that he didn't have any part in in writing, or or should we spend that same energy in, in crafting something new? And that's how that song, Every Fear Illuminated, came to be. And we did a few tours with it even before it was released. I mean, there was a few different reasons why that split got pushed back for as long as it did, but we recorded that in our house all by ourselves, you know, mixed it ourselves. It was it ended up being mastered by uh, Greg Chandler, the front fan of uh, Esoteric. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was super cool um, and very humbling experience to, like, get to talk to him and, like, mm. hear his thoughts on our take on on a genre that he helped create. Right. You know. So, yeah, Alex joined the band about three years ago, and it's like, we just wanted to jump into writing with him, you know. And, and then later on, that was, like, when we started kind of, like, I mean, he wrote sentiment with us uh, but like it was it took a little time before we were like okay let's spend some time on this little thing especially since i had grown so far away from those songs there was a period of time where i just like i didn't want to hear or play them anymore you know now i'm back to loving them again and a very weird situation that i go back and forth between but and what you just said kind of ties into something that I was, I mean, you had alluded to earlier, but, you know, this is, again, as you stated, the art is the process. And so you spend so much time creating and involved in that process and with 
um, a record and then you go out and tour on that record. And uh, I mean, and, and I think you've kind of answered this already, but are you feeling as you're doing that, like that you're just kind of done with that? And, you know, my brain changes its mind all the time when I that. No, I think there certainly is a point where I'm just like, um, where I've changed enough as a person, where we've performed the songs enough times, where I do definitely just like, I don't want to think about them right now. I don't want to, like, I want to get to new stuff. I want to continue pushing myself and seeing where we can take things. I mean, I said, I mean, we we toured with Every Fear Illuminated for two tours, I think, like a year before that song was even released, you know, and by the time that song was released, we were already a, like six or eight months into touring on Sentiment. And, you know, we, like, the first tour that we did with Songs from Sentiment was with Usmia, which was, you know, 10 months before the record released. So there was like a full, you know, two weeks of touring, I guess, and even more than that. Cause I think we did two or three tours before something came out, but uh, where we were just playing all the material that no one had heard uh, at all, which I don't even know. I like, we, we, we asked ourselves if that's like an irresponsible thing to do, you know, like, oh, should we wait till these songs? But I don't, I don't know. I do this for myself. So, I mean, I do it for other people, but for myself first. And if I'm not feeling connected to the material we're playing then I don't I don't want to do it and so, but like interesting thing is is like yeah I do I have found recently coming back to especially in this process of reobserving songs from the tomb of all things that things have been recontextualized again and that's like a common theme that's a word I keep repeating but uh especially like through the luminous stuff which I think is probably everyone's favorite track from that for a few re- reasons one it has a mildly shreddy guitar solo in it, and it ha- and it's a, it's the fastest song on the record, so it's like the most headbanging, I guess. But because it was a little felt a little showoffy to me, it wasn't as introspective externally. It really bothered me that that was the song that everyone loved, ah, yeah. you know. And so we we closed with it for years in our set, and I just like I just got so tired of it. And so, like, I was just like, I'm not playing that song anymore. Like, I'm done with that stupid guitar solo that, like, everyone wiggles their fingers at me while I play it. Like, that's, like, that's not the attention that I wanted. But now, now I look back at the lyrics and I realize that, you know, the lyrics were inspired by a Swamp Thing comic, an issue, a particular issue called uh, The Burial. And are you familiar with Swamp Thing at all? Uh, a little. I read, I think, some of the Alan Moore issues. Yeah. So it's an Alan, it was part of the Alan Moore uh, series. And I'll just quickly, uh, Swamp Thing uh, was a man that developed this serum that helped plants grow. And then these gangsters like blew up his lab. And then he got imbued with the serum and the swamp. And then he woke up as this monster. And then his wife like freaked out and like no, all of his friends. And, and so he had to come to terms with the fact that he was he was no longer a human, that he was this monster. And then later on in the series, he decides to, you know, the only way to move past is to fully come to terms with what's happened to him, is to find his human remains and bury them, to, full, to actually put them to rest. And in this process, what he realizes is that the Swamp Thing was never, was never the human. Swamp Thing was always this creature that simply absorbed that human's memory and when he gained consciousness he thought that he used to be a human but then came to terms that, it, that they were two separate entities that he had just absorbed part of that and so he after doing all this work 
to come to terms with the fact that his that his, his humanity was lost. He now is forced to come to terms with the fact that his humanity was never intrinsically a part of what the small thing was. And it was this really I just thought the symbolic reference of like burying your past self yeah. to to move forward uh, was very potent to me. And that's what that song through the luminous dust. Uh, was about. I think a lot of people, if you look at the lyrics, it almost seems like it's a song about suicide. It's not. It's about burying your past self. It's about moving forward into the next, into your next chapter of your life. And for a long time, we opened with the song called "In Its Absence," uh, and the co- lyrical content of "In Its Absence" is about, you know, basically about like okay, uh, about how people typically will not want to seek help for their mental illness or whatever they're dealing with because they feel like it's an intrinsic part of their personality. It's something I've dealt with for a long time. It's like, okay, who would I be without my depression? If I wasn't this sad, melodramatic weirdo, would I even be able to write the music that I write or make the art that I make? Uh, and that scares me. It, it scares the living shit out of me to think that if I just eliminated this thing that is such a toxic part of my character, could I operate as the same person? Uh, you know, that's where that line is, who would I be in its absence right. uh, comes from. Absolutely. And I I started getting disillusioned with that concept. And so I thought the idea of bringing back through the luminous dust as a concept of burying my past self, burying the idea that I would not be the person that I am without my depression, mm. moving beyond that to discover who I would be you know, beyond that horizon. That became a new idea, a new concept to me that kind of breathed new life into that song, and now I'm fully enamored with it. Wow! Okay. Even with even even with the, the crappy guitar solo, you know that I hated for so long, it's like like symbolically it has changed for me and has became a new thing. So that was a very wordy way of answering that. So. Oh, it's fascinating that uh, that journey, that process. Hopefully that was concise. I mean, it wasn't concise, but I tried my best. (laughs) No, it wasn't concise, but it all needs to be in there. And it made sense. It was really fascinating to listen to. And it just makes me wonder. I mean, that's, it's just a really interesting tracing of of the development of these thoughts and these ideas. And um, so where you go next with that will be really interesting if you choose to go anyplace else with that particular Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, I think that like sitting down and having this kind of conversation with you, even though it's much less marketable, it's much less interesting as a consumer. I mean, this is a similar experience for me, like talking through these things, like even as I talk, I'm realizing new ways to think about myself. And like this interaction with you is like illuminating for me. And that's like the same kind of work that I do when I sit, sit down to write a song or an album. And so it's like, okay, no one is going to listen to this a hundred thousand times and be like, oh man, this is really, this is my jam. This is like one of the best things I've ever heard, you know? Uh, but to me, like, this is like essentially the same type, type of work. So yeah, there'll be another record, of course. I don't know what it's going to sound like. I'm kind of scared of what it'll sound like because maybe no one will like it. Uh, but that fear, that anxiety, that uncertainty is something that I will force myself to lean into because whatever ha- comes of that, is the only possible thing that could come from that. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, it's, it's what has to come from it. So, yeah. I have one final question, and that is okay. uh, Samoth Race. Are you still involved? Are they still a band? 
And if if they are still a band, it's really time for something new. <laughs> uh, that's a whole other podcast of stuff. Um, I mean, in theory, yeah, yeah, we are. Um, I don't. I mean, my interpretation. I've only been in the band for like five years now, which is such a small small portion and it's certainly it's been a weird ride since I've been a part of the group and when I first joined I was like I, w- I had this fire in me that was like okay this is it like at that point five years ago people were already ready for something and um, I was like well I'm going to be the guy I'm like the fresh blood that's like really pushes these guys like inspires them because I especially since I when I joined we had just released the tomb of all things so I was super jazzed and ready to kind of like you know be creative in a different format but what I realized is that it's it's really all about emotional timing, and and the more I pushed for that, the the more I realized it put just put unnecessary pressure on on the creative process, and it and it made it choke rather than inspire. And for me, as a fan of Famous Race, there's a reason why Life's Trade is as potent and still relevant as it is in like doom metal, and it it had a magic to it. There was a spark that that came from a very specific culmination of, of things that were happening right at that time, just like two of all things, you know? And so there's, I think a little bit of anxiety that like whatever the next Hammer race endeavor is, is that it won't be another life's trade or it won't be another reverend stone. And I understand that because I have that same anxiety about, un, but as an outsider, I also realized that like it doesn't have to be like whatever it is, it will be another uh, life's trade because it will be the same. It will just be a very unique group of things and feelings and circumstances and emotions. And hopefully that's the thing that people latch on to. Yeah. Uh, so, but I, I don't push it as hard now because I want it to be about timing and I want it to feel right. And I want it to, uh, so at the moment, I, I think I think so. Like I think that there will still be another Santa's Race record, um, and I hope that I'm a part of it. And I'm sure I will be. But you know, but but if for whatever reason I'm not, I think that's that's just what will be necessary for whatever happens. You know? yeah. As a, as a fan of Santa's Race, you know, yeah. Brian Spink and and Joe, I love them dearly. So they're huge influences in my life that I'm really just honored to that I've gotten to share in on that. Yeah. I know that there was at least one other person between Dylan and you. But, you know. there, was a, there was a couple there was a couple people and I think that I I can't really speak to what happened with, oh, yeah. with no. that. Yeah. Uh, I just I just don't know. But what I do know is is that I tell Dylan all the time that I'm gonna replace him in every band he ever plays. <laughs> <laughs> So. Yeah, big shoes to fill there for sure. <laughs> He's yeah. got big clacky shoes too. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, um, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for showing up. I appreciate it. Yeah, appreciate yeah. it, man. <laughs>